0: Weird Era podcast. Today I'm talking to local writer Helen Chow Bradley about their debut collection of short stories, Personal Attention Roleplay. Helen Chow Bradley is a writer and musician living in De Montreal. Uh, They're the author of Automatic Object Lessons from House House Press. Their stories and essays have appeared in Weird Era, Carte Blanche, Cosmonauts Avenue, Entropy Magazine, Mizenev Magazine, the Montreal Review of Books, and elsewhere. A young gymnast crashes, crushes on an older, more talented teammate while contending with her overworked mother. A newly queer 20-something juggles two intimate relationships with a slippery anarchist lover and an idiosyncratic Meals on Meals recipient. A queer metal band's summer tour unravels in the sticky heat of the North, amid the sticky heat of the Northeastern U.S. A codependent listicle writer becomes obsessed with the Japanese ASMR channel. The stories and personal attention role-play are propelled by queer loneliness, mixed-race confusion, late capitalist despondency, and the pitfalls of intimacy. Taking place in Montreal, Toronto, and elsewhere, they feature young Asian misfits struggling with the desire to see themselves reflected in their surroundings, in others, online. Chow Bradley's precise language and investigation of our more troubling motivations stand out in this Riley funny debut through stories that hint at the uncanny while remaining grounded in the everyday. Hi, Helen. Thanks so much for being here. Hi, thanks for having me. Um, I'd like to start by asking you to read the epigraph of the book, please. 80% of the
1: human body is made of water, so it isn't surprising that one sees a different face in the mirror each morning. The skin of the forehead and cheeks changes shape from moment to moment, like the mud of a swamp, shifting with the movements of the water below and the footsteps of the people walking above it. That's Yoko Tawada from Where Europe Begins, which is translated from Japanese by Yumi Seldon.
0: Um, There are many ways of thinking about movement, of course, emotionally, intellectually, etc. But there's a really particular sensory awareness to the stories in this book. So this quote to me reads more literally than anything else. I guess it made me wonder, in what ways is fiction a place of movement for you and and physically so, uh, to be more specific? Mm
1: -hmm. Um, I think a lot of... My writing often... Well, I guess the stories for me begin way, way before I write anything down. I'm the kind of writer who will think and think and think about a story. It's almost like I'm writing like drafts in my mind before I type anything out. Um, And sometimes that will take weeks. Sometimes it will take months. I think sometimes maybe I'll have been thinking of this story for a couple of years before I actually try to write it. And a lot of that rumination happens when I'm moving. So, you know, if I'm on a walk, or biking somewhere, or, you know, swimming laps, or, or what have you, um, I think that a lot of these, like, germinated, the germination of the stories often occurs when I'm physically a movement. So I guess it makes sense if you pick up on that movement somehow, when you actually read the stories, because a lot of them originate from there. And then of course, a lot of those stories literally involve movement. Like there are at least two stories that take place in a different physical location every day that the story is happening. So there's a story about a band on tour And there's another story about these two young people doing the Camino de Santiago, which is a walking pilgrimage in Spain.
0: Because you're thinking, because so much of the writing process is happening um, intellectually, when you get to the page, is it just like a one shot sort of deal because you've worked on it before? Or are you still in a process of like, you know, multiple drafts, rewriting? I mean, I'm sure you rewrite, but I'm sort of wondering about the shift there.
1: I wish that all the rumination meant that I could then write the stories really fast, but <laughs> it still takes me a, it still takes me a pretty long time to draft the stories. I think the one that came out the most easily was the Q, which is a story that I wrote entirely in unattributed dialogue that takes place in a really long lineup. Um, and maybe it's because that one was all dialogue. It somehow it came out more quickly. Um, I think that's probably the one that I wrote the fastest. There are a couple others that I ended up writing quite fast and it was because I was writing them for various workshops and the reason I was able to write them quickly was because I had to, cause there was a deadline, but I think left to my own devices, it still takes a pretty long time to get that first draft together.
0: What a relief. <laughs> I thought <laughs> you might give me a different answer and I was going to get scared. I mean, it happens. Everyone has a different process. Um, just one example of your penchant for attributing these beautifully sensory textures to the novel um you know on page 52 I'll pull an example there's a there's a passage uh, i started to anticipate the smell of the front hallway a heady mixture of herbal infusions fried onions unwashed hair and something fleeting that i can never quite grasp again this sentence is just one example of many but does this book have an odor to you and if it did could you describe it
1: that's funny that you bring up scents because um, sometime during the early pandemic, um, a friend of mine introduced me to the world of perfumery, which was something that I just really didn't have any knowledge of before. And yeah, I, so- I started to get really interested in like sampling perfumes during quarantine, I think just as a way to make one day... Feel different from another. So I think that probably crept into some of the stories because I was still writing the book, uh, especially in 2020. Um, I don't think the book has one scent to it. I think something I've noticed, even with my like interaction with perfume, is I'm less interested in finding like one signature scent and more interested in exploring, at least at this point. And I think maybe that could be said for the way that. I write stories, you know, I think obviously there are uniting themes in the collection um, and a lot of them have to do with like loneliness versus the difficulty of interpersonal relating. Uh, But other than that, I tend to sample different ways of writing and um, different types of voices and different characters in different settings. So I think you could say that about like any types of sensory details that
0: are in the collection as well. Right. To me, it was a musk. (laughs) I mean, I I completely... Mm -hmm. tell me more. (laughs) (laughs) Um, I don't know. Maybe because uh, there was this kind of... I mean, I think I'll get to it later, but there's this kind of uh, intimacy in the book that borders on something erotic. And maybe that is why that's what Mm. I was getting from it but i absolutely also would agree that it can't be summed up in one sentence i was just curious um, if that was something you were thinking about many of the stories in this book explore queer identities i've been asking this to most queer authors on the podcast given that they're writing of this identity given that they're writing of this identity from a modern place and of course queer literature has existed forever but despite this there feels to me like a modern queer writers are addressing A lack of visibility or representation in a very specific way that only, you know, we can, um, in a way that can only respond to, like, the state of, you know, things as it is. Um, But I do want to ask you the question that I, again, often ask. Are these stories intended to fill a lack you feel or perceive in fiction, like, of visibility, of representation, of any of that? Yeah, I think part of me is like, no,
1: I'm not writing these stories to create any kind of representation. I think I just say that because um, I think I chafe at some of the ways that I see representation discussed with regards to fiction. I think uh, sometimes we get lost in these conversations that are kind of like, you know, such and such an author didn't represent such and such an identity properly, and therefore their writing is not worthwhile or they need to apologize, or or like, you know what I mean? I think that's sort of the bad side of that conversation. On the other hand, um, I do think that I was propelled to write certain stories because I don't see those perspectives very much in contemporary literature. And like you say, there's lots of, a vast array of like queer and trans um, writers who are creating work right now that, all of it is like becoming part of this larger literary conversation, if you will. Um, especially in the past few years, so that's exciting. Um, and I'm I'm hoping to add to that in some tiny little way. I think part of the fun thing about writing a collection of stories is that I, I get to play around with at least a few different perspectives, um, which would which can be done in a novel too, of course, but is maybe easier for me to conceive of if I'm writing shorter pieces.
0: Um, It sounded to me uh, that we share a similar sentiment and that we, and, you know, correct me if I'm wrong, but this idea that um, a book's value needs to be uh, determined by how accurate um, certain representation is when that accuracy can be so subjective in and of itself i feel like that is a very much a conversation that's happening right now in the lit world and i you know as a bookseller and I, I know you were a bookseller um yeah i sort of try to encourage readers to be more critical than that. Um, but I don't know how to go about doing so um, without, you know, stepping around this and in, in stepping around this very delicate topic. But I think that there's just so much more richness to their reading experience um, if they looked a little bit beyond that. Do you know what I mean?
1: Yeah. And I think the other thing is that, um, you know, I'm writing fiction. I'm not writing memoir. I'm not writing about myself. So of course, you know, my positioning in the world and the things that I've experienced or things my friends have experienced have a huge, you know, influence on what I end up writing and probably also like on the perspectives that I end up being able to write very well, realistically. So that's definitely true. But at the same time, you know, I am creating characters and, you know, sometimes I do get a little worried that people will somehow ascribe those characters morals or the things that they do or the things that they think to literally me and what I do and think when in fact, they're quite different and separate. And I want to be able to write a vast, you know, array of queer characters who are, you know, quote, unquote, problematic in various ways, I kind of feel like it's more fun and realistic that way.
0: Absolutely. Um, Similarly, you take great care to ensure that race is depicted in the characters in this book. Um, even with something as minor as ensuring that the names of characters are diverse, you know, uh, reflective of an actual multicultural reality we all live in. There isn't this sort of blanket whitewashing that's happening in the characters you create. I also try to take great care in doing this whenever I try to write fiction. I think it's important um, in contemporary fiction in particular. But do you find sharing this inclusion is hard? Like. So to clarify, it's easy for me to imagine non-white characters, but I'm just terrible at character naming, <laughs> let alone for non-white characters. It's like oh. it's an extra step you sort of have to take because, you know, you want to you represent the diversity, but then you're suddenly aware that you're placing a brown name next to, you know, a predominantly popular black name or an Asian name. And then suddenly the, your scene has been built up in a specific way. Did you find that difficult?
1: Yeah, that's a good question. Um, It's definitely something that I've thought about a bunch. Um, Naming, you know, I feel like sometimes people might be tempted to take the slightly easier way out and either not name characters or just give them an initial or whatnot, and that's often been tempting to me. Um, But yeah, I think what ends up happening is that if if I'm naming characters who are don't have like you know generic white or francophone name, English or francophone names. Um, I do end up having to do a bunch of research just to make sure that I didn't name in a way that wouldn't make any sense. I ended up, there's like a, there's some, well, the, the main character of the gods and heroes story is half Japanese and is uh, fourth generation. And I had to do some research in terms of naming her, naming her mother, naming her uncle, and then just sort of thinking about how the generations of her family would have settled in this country and what their names might be based on which generation they are. So, yeah, I think naturally a little more thought has to go into that. I hope I didn't mess anything up. But
0: No, I, I think you did a great job. I just yeah. find it difficult on my end. It's sort of like an added responsibility on top of the responsibility of writing you know, in and of itself. But I, I think it's an important thing uh, to take up. Um, uh, I guess it's particularly reflective, reflective of modern life in that a lot of these stories tackle PC culture, accountability, politics, etc. A lot of these characters are asked to prove their identity with their politics. This makes them uncomfortable. You know, am I really ethnic if I ignore racial catcalls? Am I really gay if I don't attend rallies? In what ways is queerness to you tied up with morality? What is that relationship?
1: Hmm. Um, well, I think that a lot of what these characters are going through are are sort of questions that are familiar to me. And they're types of things that, like, you know, my friends and I might rant about on a thread or when we <laughs> hang out at dinner Um, And some of it is like, obviously poking fun at certain aspects of like, you know, queer urban experience, specifically in, in, you know, Montreal, but also elsewhere, or intern, you know, queer internet experience, however much you can speak to that Um, morality, I think, more and more I do, or I guess I have always believed that, you know, being queer is a political marker, and that part of being queer is not just about, you know, this obsession we see online with whether, is my identity valid or not? Like, do other people think my identity is valid? I don't think that that's the conversation I'm interested in. I think, you know, when I say I'm queer, I mean that, um... I also hang out with other queer people that I'm interested in acting in solidarity with other queer and trans people that like when there are calls for action and support, I want to answer them if, you know, if possible, um, that, it, that it's more than just about like, this is my identity that I label myself with, or this is who I sleep with. But there is a bigger conversation about who I'm actively working to be in community with and what that looks like. And I think also like what my responsibility to those communities might be and I think that that is an important aspect of uh queerness to me anyway um even though I know that obviously there are people who don't believe that
0: why are you not interested in the other conversation so much the one about you know am I allowed to be and what am I and what am I allowed to be why does that not interest you
1: I mean, it's not that it doesn't interest me, because I think in some ways, a lot of the characters in the stories are wrestling with that question on some level. Mm -hmm. And sometimes I think as the writer, I'm like kinder to them and other times not so much. Um, (laughs) But uh, it's not that that conversation is not interesting or important. But I think that there's maybe a problem when that's where it stops. Uh, When when like the validity of X identity is sort of the end of the conversation as opposed to a part of a much larger conversation about, yeah, who we are choosing to be in community with and what that means when those communities need solidarity and support and need to be strengthened.
0: And what's the appeal of exploring that in fiction in particular?
1: Um, Well, I think that I partly write fiction in order to think through certain big questions like that, Uh, right? Like identity versus active political action or uh, your relationship with your inner self versus your relationship with other people. Um, The relationship of two people versus the relationship with the whole community of people. Um, How do those things get defined? Where are the boundaries? Who gets to set the boundaries? What happens when the boundaries fail? Uh, etc. I don't have any answers to any of those questions. But I think that fiction is a good place to explore a lot of that uh, without being didactic, because you can kind of play it out with a whole bunch of different characters, and voices and scenarios. And I guess that's the ongoing exercise that I'm engaging in.
0: I mean, that's exactly also the appeal to me as a reader, you know, not just a writer. That's what's interesting oh, yeah, same. to explore. Yeah. Um, but there are, you know, queer femme women in these stories. Uh, they're all often hapless about their desire, or so it read to me. You know, many of them are chasing after love and affirmation and, like, maybe not the best of resources, maybe even abusive people. It's sort of a very specific feminine lesbian experience that you kind of locate in a lot of these stories. And I'm wondering if it would be diminutive or helpful or incorrect or interesting or lame if this text came to be labeled as a lesbian novel and not a queer novel.
1: Well, it's not a novel, but sorry, uh, correct. A lesbian text, yeah,
0: a lesbian text, Um, yeah.
1: That's interesting. Uh, Sure, I think it's very lesbian in a lot of ways. Uh, You know, there's Shulman
0: vibes. There's, you know, and lesbian fiction is like a rich genre of its own.
1: Yeah, I mean, definitely some of the relationships in it probably wouldn't be labeled lesbian. Per se, like the character who is, as you say, quite hapless in various ways. In the um, only the lonely, the Meals on Wheels delivery story mm-hmm. is very into her relationship with a non-binary transmasculine character.
0: Mm-hmm.
1: Um, so I don't, I don't know if those characters would call that a lesbian relationship. Probably not. Um, mm-hmm. But yes, there are. I mean, there are certainly like quote-unquote, lesbian feelings and experiences. I think particularly in the titular story, Personal Attention role play that's a very, like, lesbian story to me. <laughs> it's like this femme queer person who is trying as hard as she can to hold on to this very mirror-like relationship with her roommate who she's in love with, who is not in love with her. Uh, And when that person finally leaves, she like gloms on to this sort of replacement female figure who is an ASMR channel. Yeah, I think there's a lot of like desperate attempts at mirroring in in various like queer and lesbian relationships that I'm interested in writing
0: about. Could you explain to listeners who don't know uh, uh, where the root of the... Personal attention role play comes from?
1: Right. So um, it is a common term in the ASMR community, which is the audio sensory meridian response community. Um, A lot of people would have heard of this by now. It's not so niche anymore, but it happens on YouTube and it's people making these uh, videos that are often meant uh, to relax via certain types of role play. Um, and the relaxing element is a combination, I would say, of audio elements and also visual elements. So uh, so there's a whole subset of these ASMR videos, which are called personal attention role play videos, where the person making the video will like lean in close to the camera and make soothing noises over the mic and they'll pretend to be like, Doing your makeup for you or like plucking the bad threads out of your aura or, you know, giving you some kind of, uh, you know, checking you into the space hotel, like clicking on a typewriter or things like this. <laughs> it's sort of hard to describe if you haven't seen them. But
0: but why, why that for the title?
1: Oh, um, I guess because that story and a lot of the stories are about people who are like searching for intimacy and kind of having a hard time finding intimacy or kind of knowing what to do with it when they find it. And I think that, I mean, I personally have been very obsessed with ASMR videos for many, many years at this point. (laughs) Um, and, uh, I think that it's interesting how they can be used to sort of not quite replace but imitate a type of, well, the video makers would call it close personal attention that you would often only get from somebody who you have some kind of ongoing intimate relationship with. Um, so I wanted to try to work with
0: that in, in a fictional setting. Um, on page 35, you write... Um, I'm I'm quoting a passage here. You would not be able to withstand the onslaught of mouth mouth noises, the multiplicity of features on his face, the awareness that upstairs there are other people with multiple features, speaking multiple words, living among shelves, dressers, cabinets, and drawers laden with objects, thinking always of objecting, thinking many thoughts all on top of each other the way you used to do. Although this passage locates a character in the midst of of a sort of hypnotic ASMR dive, speaking of, is this passage Mm -hmm. also describing depression? (laughs) Uh, Yeah, sure.
1: Um, I hadn't actually thought of that so specifically before, but I mean, I think the character is certainly in some sort of state of depression, whether she knows it or not, and certainly... Depression, in my experience, can come with an extreme sense of being overwhelmed by even the smallest thing. And so, yeah, that sort of panicked feeling of there being too many things out there on a sensory level even um, can be something that like, I don't know, can kind of like pin you into the depression and make it feel mm-hmm. absolutely impossible to even move your finger, you know?
0: Yeah, there's, like, a real dislocation. Mm -hmm.
1: Yeah, it can be very, like, cumulative and very heavy. Mm
0: -hmm. I feel like I'm very pleased (laughs) that um, in this conversation uh, the sensory quality of the book is coming up over and over again. Because it's definitely something that I was thinking about. Like, it's just so – I mean, and that's what I really like about your writing and, you know – sort of always have but I I didn't get to read it I didn't get to experience it in sort of full way you know I'd read up something you'd published Mm -hmm. here and there and having read it in like this one body of work you come away from it and the book it's tactile but the stories feel tactile I feel like I there's like a very very intense physicality to the themes in your book I almost like wanted to take a shower after but also like (laughs) like, like wrap myself in a blanket. Like it wasn't like, and it's not a bad feeling. It's just very visceral. Um, That being said, I'd had the pleasure of reading one of uh, my favorite stories in the book in a previous online publication, New Horizons, uh, which explores this young woman's basic, you know, sort of shitty relationship to her physical experience, to her physical appearance. Um, There's sort of a horror-like twist here in this story, which I found so fun. Um, I also found this sort of, like, horror genre or, again, texture present in stories like Surface Dive and The Ends of Gods and Heroes. Is that an intentional genre exploration? And I guess I'm mostly asking what your relationship to a horror genre is.
1: Hmm, I'm glad you asked that. Yeah, uh, I think, I think. Okay, when you said sort of tactile overwhelm or sensory overwhelm, I did think of the surface dive story. Mm-hmm. Um, where- oh yeah, absolutely basically there's like two realities that are coexisting and the fact of the person being in water in both versions of the reality is what kind of ties them together, but also what makes it quite horrifying by the end. Um, Honestly, I guess I don't know if I purposefully use sensory details as a way to make things horrifying, but (laughs) honestly, in that specific story, I think I had just been swimming a lot of laps and I'd been, Oh yeah. I'd been, I'd been like swimming in a lake at a, at a friend's cottage and I really love swimming, but at the same time I find swimming in a lake really terrifying if I actually let myself think about it while I'm doing it, you know? You're kind of, and I'm a strong swimmer, but uh, if I let myself think too much about how dark the water is and like what could be down there and all the things I can't see and like what would happen if I got a cramp suddenly in the middle of the lake and nobody knew. And I, I do know people who have drowned. Um, so I think that there's there are, there are horrifying things that come to mind when I'm swimming in the lake, even though it's one of my favorite things to do. And I think I just wanted to to explore where the fear comes from. And then it ends up being a very viscerally uh, sensory centered experience, just because when you're in the water, it's not necessarily a natural place to be since you can't breathe in it. So you become abundantly aware of like your physical environment.
0: I can't swim. (laughs) I'm terrified of it. No. And actually <laughs> was
1: that story like scarier <laughs> to you? Cause cause of that, do you know it? how did that story feel to you? Uh,
0: yeah. It, I mean, it was, it, I would, I don't know if scary is the right word, but it it definitely was stressful. Um, and, uh, You know, I'm at this point now where I'm older, and you know, people are like, "You should really learn." And they, you know, I've had the occasional person try to teach me, and I, I think I'm more terrified now. Like, you're supposed to relax, you're supposed to float, Mm -hmm. but I'm now an adult who is terribly aware of this thing that she's afraid of, and I just can't let myself go in that. Way I also had like I, I kind of drowned when I was y- younger as well and like a oh no yeah mm-hmm. and so that that obviously sets a scary um, tone but that's really interesting that ex- well that explains surface dive but what about what about uh, new horizon that, that that's I mean I, I, we don't spoil on weird era but there is mm-hmm. a twist there right. um that's very much rooted in that Uh
1: yeah, yeah. that one. Yeah, that's a very different type of story, because um, I feel like that one has more to do with an extreme discomfort in the narrator's own body. Mm-hmm. But the discomfort is not based. It's like based in how she imagines other people are perceiving her. Mm-hmm. So it's kind of like a social terror. Mm-hmm. Um, and, you know, she's tried to get herself over it, but she just keeps failing. Um, so I think it's like a, it is visceral as well, but in a way that's very related to the gazes of others, if you will, as opposed to the surface dive story, which is much more, uh, the physical horror of the moment, if that makes sense. It does. Um, but I guess both of them are stories about, uh, shifting from one, reality to another reality in a way that is both very fast, but also accumulate slowly at the same time,
0: which is terrible. And
1: all of a sudden (laughs) you're somewhere else. And I think to me, that's one of the scariest things. Yeah.
0: Yeah. Um,
1: And I've kind of stolen that idea or that technique from uh, Julio Cortázar, who's the Argentinian writer, who's really probably my favorite short story writer um, who is just like the master at those types of reality shifts. Uh, and he almost always does it. And I know he's going to do it, but I never know when or how. (laughs) And I think, you know, part of writing is like being a huge fan of other writers and wanting to see if I can do a version of what I admire in their work. And I guess maybe those two stories are my attempts to do that.
0: What does the short story form bring to you uh, and or isolate you from? No. Um. Hmm.
1: I mean, to be perfectly honest, I probably started writing short stories because I was too scared to write something longer. writing something longer just felt like relatable you know I was like oh you know I think I the very first fiction workshop I took was a couple years ago and it was a flash fiction workshop so we were working like 200 words and less and I was like that feels manageable Mm -hmm. um (laughs) I think it was literally called start small (laughs) Uh, yes and it was led by Jennifer Tseng who's a wonderful writer uh, and who was also really good at writing much longer stories. But uh, I think my approach to starting to finally write fiction a couple years ago was to, yeah, literally start very short and sort of see what I could do with that and then slowly try writing longer things to the, to the point where the longest story in the book, which is the story about the band on tour, um, is almost like a novella length, I think. Mm-hmm. And that one... I actually had a hard time whittling it down um, Mm -hmm. because I was trying to do so many things in that story. And part of me was like, man, should this have been a novel? What am I doing? Mm -hmm. Uh, Anyway, I think, I think it works, but uh, yeah. So I think I sort of like wrote myself into longer stories over time. Uh, And you said, what does it isolate me from?
0: Mm. If it does.
1: I don't know. I mean, I think writings can be quite isolating in general, but uh, not in a bad way necessarily. Um, I think if I want to speak to challenges of writing in the short form, it's that uh, at least for me and a lot of people have different approaches, you know, some people write short stories with a very, from the perspective of the same character over and over again. And I'm very interested in, in writers like that, like, Lucia Berlin is, is an example mm-hmm. I can think of. Mm-hmm. Uh, and I, I love her writing. And mm-hmm. they feel they are definitely short stories, but it's often a similar protagonist. Whereas I think every for me, at least like every time I start to write a new story, I kind of have to think of a whole new world and a new scenario and new characters and new character relationships. And sometimes that can just feel a little bit overwhelming, overwhelming and exhausting. And part of me wants to Try writing a longer project just so that I can stay
0: in the same world with the same characters for a longer time. You know, speaking of, in the story titled, and let me know if I'm mispronouncing it, Finisterre, am I saying that right?
1: Yeah, Um, yeah.
0: Yeah, there comes a point where a character clarifies that Finisterre is Latin for the end of the world. Another character responds, I know that, I can't resist saying, even though it hadn't come together in my head until just then. I had this very meta moment as the reader. Reader, I, too, hadn't had it come together in my head until just then. Um, and mm-hmm. I love the short story form, particularly for the ways in which endings can be left so undone but poised at the same time. Um, I'm wondering if finishing a story for you is similar and that you don't realize it's done until suddenly it's done and it's just come together in your head. Like the word finister. stare. <laughs>
1: Mm, that's a good question. Um, actually funny you ask it and mention that story because I think that uh, that story kind of like went on for a little bit longer after that point and then my editor was like, yeah you could just you could just cut it back there <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> so in that one I had some editorial help and I think that she was totally right. Um, and I think in other stories sometimes, Sometimes I write with the end in mind. Sometimes I know exactly where I want to get to. I know Mm -hmm. almost like what the end scene is and how the characters are going to inhabit that scene and how I kind of maybe want the reader to feel as much as that's a possible thing to do. And then I have to like write towards it. And then I guess other times it probably happens the way you described where it just kind of comes up at me and I'm like, oh, I guess that's the end. Yeah, there's no one way that it happens.
0: Would you agree, though, that this is very subjective for me, but for me, the pleasure in reading a short story and in writing as well um, is very much the part where the ending is left so undone but poised at the same time. It's like those two things juxtaposed Mm -hmm. together. Is that an ideal... Is that something you also look for as a reader or as a writer?
1: Yeah, I think that's a really good way to describe it. Um, yeah, you're kind of left with one foot. It's like, yeah. oh, okay, this is, <laughs> I do I do borrow from other writers a lot. Uh, there's a Gail Scott book called um, My Paris, where at the end of it, I think it just ends and it's like, we've been hearing about this she protagonist the whole book. And then the last sentence is like she, and then there's an M dash and the book just ends. Um, and I love that. And obviously I I love that, you know, I, uh, (laughs) and when I read that, I was like, Oh, that's the perfect ending to this book. Uh, and maybe that's the type of feeling that I want to have at the end of a story, um, without actually copying her syntax. Um, Where, yeah, something still, it's not like the end of the story comes and then nothing's going to happen after that. Things are going to keep happening. They might be really terrible things. They might be things that you can't imagine. Uh, But yeah, I do want to get a sense that things are not static by the end, that there's still motion.
0: Many of these stories read like a love letter to Montreal. What do you think of the literary and art scene in Montreal?
1: Um, well, I guess I've been part of it in various ways for a really long time now because mm-hmm. uh, I, I moved here in 2008 um, and I think I engaged with it first and primarily through music. Um, I'm pretty sure that I like moved to Montreal and became a volunteer at Pop Montreal, which is a big uh, indie music festival here that I eventually ended up working for. Um, Mm -hmm. but yeah, those are sort of my early days of engaging with sort of the arts and culture scene in the city, especially on the Anglo side, to be honest, um, Mm -hmm. through music. That was just a time where there was just a ton of shows and a ton of small venues. And I think that, uh, becoming part of that helped me, helped me feel like I was part of something, you know, the way that you want to feel when you're like 18 or 19. Um,
0: yeah.
1: And so yeah, and I think that part, being part of like various art, artist communities, either as an audience member or as somebody who makes the art or some combination of the two has always been a really, really important part of my life here. And I think it's actually what has kept me here for so long. Um, yeah, and then eventually, I guess I made my way into the more literary side of it I became a bookseller and started to get more of a sense of what uh you know readings looked like and who was writing and whose work seemed interesting and how people related to each other
0: and um am I right or are, are some of these stories kind of mini love letters to Montreal oh sure yeah I think
1: uh yes Yes. I think uh, some of them are very literally that, like the one Mm -hmm. where the person is riding around and delivering meals all over the city. And Mm -hmm. I try to describe like intersections and streets and buildings and stuff like that. Um, And other times it's more of a feeling.
0: It's a real delight just as a reader and and a Montrealer. It's a real delight to find, you know, it's like, it, it felt like reading Mavis Gallant. Um, who I oh love, 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 yeah, yeah. well, I mean, that's also a very specific feeling, right? Like Montreal, you know, m- you and I are, are pretty big readers, and um mm-hmm. how how much local work, how much local fiction are we reading in comparison to international or even just straight up American? So it's really delightful to see the city that i that is not perfect, but that I do love um, represented back to me in fiction. It's a delight.
1: Oh, I'm glad to hear that. Thank you. <laughs>
0: um, thanks, Helen. This is great. <laughs> thanks for being here. Um, s- listeners, you can grab a copy of Personal Attention Roleplay at Library St. Henry Books on the Weird Era shelf. You can also pick up uh, Weird Era issue one, where Helen's story, uh, The Q, is featured. Um, thanks for listening. Bye.